0: Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis, and me, Aaron
1: Gash Burnett.
0: Hello, and welcome back to Berlin Side Out, the foreign affairs podcast with the German Council on Foreign Relations that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Aaron Gashburnett, a journalist specializing in German politics, and of course, Berlin Side Out's resident German-Canadian, to continue our discussion on an often neglected part of the transatlantic relationship, the one that Germany and Europe more widely have with Canada. Aaron, you've been enjoying this week, haven't you?
1: Yes, definitely, Ben, absolutely. Um, And not all of that is just because we get to talk about my two countries and uh, the country of my birth, of course. Uh, A big part of that is down to our great guests that we've had this week. Last episode, we heard from Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Balkan Devlin, and Christian Leuprecht from Canada's. McDonald laurier Institute on a whole range of topics. We talked about one of my favorite themes, the national security premium, how Canada has a lot of critical resources the democratic world needs for its future prosperity, energy transition, and overall security, and how it has the potential to really contribute to the team uh, by helping to provide an alternative source of critical resources other than Authoritarian regimes like Russia and China that provide a lot of those critical resources currently. Uh, But we're simply not seeing certain discussions getting joined up between members of the team, including Germany and Canada, and we really do need to have these discussions. Uh, We also discussed the low level of defense spending in both countries, how and why we need to ramp that up. That's something we're going to discuss a lot in greater detail today with our guests, Anessa Kimball and Stephanie Carvin. But first, One thing that's been coming out a lot in our discussions on Germany and Canada, Ben, is both countries' reliance on liberal international ordering, right? That's right, Aaron. And we hear a lot
0: of lip service paid to this in both countries about how important this is. But if it was really considered that important, we'd see both Germany and Canada actually stepping up to do more to not only defend liberal ordering, but to really renew it and to come up with ways to actually make it relevant to the current security situation in the world, but also to actually become that platform that we need to not only allow uh, democratic societies free societies to survive but to really help them thrive and i think that's the missing part of our discussion which of course goes back to what we've talked about earlier in the season about neo-idealism and about grand strategy right. for liberal democracies so i don't think we're really making those links but what we didn't expect was that one way to get there would be for me to show off my hockey knowledge <laughs> during this episode nonetheless we do so listeners it was impressive. We, have, we have a treat for you today uh, in many ways
1: Yes, we do indeed. <laughs> um, I was pleasantly surprised, of course, I think as were our guests. So um, uh, you'll have to listen to a bunch of that episode or the whole thing to really get that bonus little nugget there. I promise you it's worth it. You
0: see, it's not just all grand strategy and Titan vendor over here. And this Although hockey depth, is a very
1: strategic yeah. game and I know that from having played it <laughs> um, for many years when I was younger, of course. Now turning to that main discussion today, we were very happy to have joining us Anessa Kimball, professor at Laval University Center on International Security. And co-director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network, as well as Stephanie Carvin, uh, an associate professor of international affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa. Let's go to our chat with them now. As we touched on in our last episode, Canada is only spending about 1.29% of its GDP on defence, one of the lowest in NATO. This is at a time when some politicians and analysts are now saying that even 2% isn't enough. In Estonian Prime Minister Kallas's recent interview with the Times, she indicated that 2.5% is a more realistic figure to be able to actually deter Russia. Other analysts say even that's low. And you, Inessa, you wrote a piece for the NATO Association of Canada uh, that argues that NATO should move beyond this political 2%. Uh, Target. Can you explain for our listeners a little bit what you mean by this moving beyond?
2: I mean, I think it's important to trace the origins of 2%. And, uh, you know, the origins of 2% came at the end of the Cold War, when what we had was this really complicated bargaining environment where there are 14 countries trying to get into NATO, right? And so you're trying to signal to these countries, you know, what is an appropriate level of spending so you can really do those Article 4 tasks. It is about maintaining a level of national capabilities and being able to contribute to the collectivity. And so that's the first thing you have to remember. And 2% came out as a guide to those countries, which have much smaller economies at the time. And compared to Canada today, Canada's economy is still relatively large to all of those countries in comparison, we'll leave Germany aside, that are making 2%. So we're trying to say, let's think that we're going here because we want you to think about long-term planning. And again, that period was about, you know, kind of... um, you know, socializing these countries about what NATO is NATO spending, that it's a long-term thing. These countries were transitioning from a very centralized system where none of that was in their hands really, right? Um, And so at the time, it was really important. And so now you have to fast forward to Wales in 2014, where it kind of makes it into the official, um, you know, paperwork and everything. And again, still, we're in this this moment in 2014, where, you know, um, Russia is acting uh, in Ukraine for the first time, right? So it's the first time the actual 2% makes it into something. And at that point, it became a commitment, but it had kind of a 10 year tag on it, a loose 10 year tag on it. So we're kind of telling countries, you've got to go from what we think now is a norm we want you to do to a real political commitment. And so this is also a nice way to kind of follow and trace the emergence of a norm to a policy. Um, And so what we have seen now is that countries are very preemptively, like Germany, all right, adopting policies where they're saying we have to spend 2%. Estonia is another country because they know NATO has said this is what we are doing. In Canada, we have a big challenge because we don't have a large military. So one challenge is even if we got 2%, could we spend it? Because we're in a recruitment crisis for a number of cycles. Um, So that's one challenge. That 2% was about economies that were magnitudes smaller than Canada's. And so functionally, right? And because I'm a a bit of a defense economist, this means, you know, Canada would have to ramp up spending about $80 billion in one cycle to reach 2%. That's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of money for any country, right? And so again, what you have to realize is that in Canada, there's just, there's not that appetite, that much appetite for defense spending, because we're also fundamentally in a different geographic situation than most of our partners in Europe. You know, recalling it's a NATO 2%, and 30 of the countries in NATO are located in Europe, right? And so in some senses, this was also signaling to European countries in one way or another about defense investment and capacity. Um, And so I think those are important things to remember. But the other thing for Canada, obviously, is that we do a hell of a lot um, with what we spend. And so in a comparative sense, in terms of what we're doing to the missions, what we're contributing there, we are performing as well as countries with much larger militaries like France and Germany. And so I think that's the other part to recognize.
3: Sorry, if I could just echo that. I mean, I would just nuance it a bit. I would agree. I agree with everything. And as I said, I would would nuance it a bit. You know, if you do ask Canadians, and there have been surveys, there was a survey last year done by Nano's research in 2023, which actually showed that 64% of Canadians do support hitting that 2% target. But I think if you actually explain to them, as Anessa did, it's $80 billion that, you know, we would, on top of what we're already spending, I believe that this, you know, I wonder if Canadians would, in the end, support that. And while they do perhaps support the idea of NATO spending and, and our international commitments, they also support really low taxes, right? Like they don't necessarily want to support the the tax increases that would be necessary in order to do this, especially at a time where, you know, a lot of people are feeling uncertainty in the economy. We have a housing price crisis. So I don't think Canadians are automatically you know like we often say that Canadians are naval gazing and they don't want you know we, we live in a different neighborhood um but there is some political support for increased uh military spending and I think as we're Uh, Heading into an ever more uncertain world, we are going to see more, uh, we may actually see more support for that going forward. Whether or not any of the political parties will prioritize that, I I strongly doubt.
1: Let me follow this up a little bit because one thing that I personally, as a German Canadian dual national, see as common to both countries is an absent threat assessment when it comes to um, the type of threat that Russia actually poses. I mean, you know, in Germany, we are (laughs) theoretically at least uh, a lot closer to Russia. Um, but there's still Central and Eastern Europe that are, um, you know, I guess in between us and Russia. And it's it's hard to sometimes uh, make the argument to regular Germans that it is Russia is, in fact, uh, a threat. It is a threat to us. But at the same time, when I say theoretically, we are closer to Russia, we, of course, have the Arctic. Um, this is a common area with which Russia and Canada are the two largest uh, countries uh, in the world. So. Uh, sometimes I also think that uh, when it comes to, as you're saying, Stephanie, about uh, are Canadians willing to put some skin in the game and put some money uh, on this kind of stuff, that part of that is because I don't necessarily think that we're having um, the kind of, of conversation about Russia as a threat in Canada that we potentially uh, need need to have. And that's something that seems to be common to both countries. Um, what do you think is necessary um, uh, in, in order to bring that conversation in a way that the public is really going to really going to understand this, and this is something I think that can apply to both countries, actually.
2: I mean, my sense is that the, the Arctic we know is an issue that speaks to most Canadians and, and most citizens. I think that the challenge of the Arctic for most Canadians, in my view, is that there's a, there's a mix of you know um, not wanting to kind of securitize the Arctic, but also wanting to at the same time protect the Arctic and respect the indigenous people that live in the Arctic, right? And so our listeners have a lot of kind of tensions going on at the same time. They understand that Russia is a risk there and that there are security risks there, but they also understand very much that if Canada um, and by proxy, uh, you know, the United States through NORAD, and this is also a huge part of how Canada thinks about the Arctic and defense and security, is the, through the North American Aerospace Defense Command. Um, and so, um, if Canada starts doing more to secure that area, it brings in other sets of actors and stakeholders, which are complicated for domestic politics, to put it lightly. And I am not an expert in Indigenous Canadian politics. I could not speak to that very well. There are other experts you could ask. Um, but... I know that this is something that Trudeau and our government stumbles with um, repeatedly. And so there is that aspect. Um, And I think that Canadians, you know, when it comes to thinking of it, and, and, you know, I agree with Stephanie completely that there is this kind of, um, they care about defense and security. um, But I think that this is very much tied to as well, this kind of Canadian feeling a bit that they don't ever want to appear as though they're doing too much that's offensive, defensively, one might say.
0: Yeah, it's rare rare to meet an offensive Canadian. We know that. Um, yeah, yeah,
2: right? But they don't, you know, so like part of that kind of, you know, I talk about it a bit as like, a, you know, an addiction to multilateralism. And so part of that you know, really challenges Canada sometimes to step up and take responsibility when it comes to its national territory and sovereignty. Um, It
0: does. But Anessa, let me let me come in there because I'm going to challenge you both actually on this, um, because Canada benefits greatly from some form of liberal order in the world and that is a highly multilateral endeavor so it's not just about canada's territory and canada should be doing more to step up and take care of that it relies on the us for a lot of its air policing relies on the us for air assets canada currently has 43 trained fighter pilots that's it 43 um, so there's, there's considerable scope for doing more at home. There's massive scope for doing more abroad. The pocket brigade that's been deployed to Latvia. That's a bit of a shame, isn't it? If even Germany's able to uh, deploy a full brigade by 2027 to neighboring Lithuania. Is, is Canada really getting the serious conversation it needs from its leaders about why that international order matters for Canadian security and prosperity? And wouldn't that be the way to actually help increase defense spending? Stephanie?
3: You raise really, really good points. And I, I would just say a couple of things. And, you know, to echo, again, uh, it's always it's always fun to be in radical agreement with people. But, um, you know, to Anessa's point here that um, I think there's always been a public perception in Canada the Arctic will take care of itself. That, like, if someone tried to invade the Arctic, we would actually have to spend more resources rescuing them than attacking them because they would not survive. It is extremely inhospitable up 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 there there are and i, I want to be clear like the indigenous and inuit issue up there is is very serious there are communities that live there uh, it is their home but it is also a very hard place to actually uh, hold military operations the angle of the earth is such that it's hard to even put um, remotely piloted aircraft up there because you can't even really have uh, the, the signals that you need to to control these uh, devices. So I think what might change the conversation in the Arctic as well as generally is not so much Russia as China. And that's maybe where the conversation i think is changing a bit and maybe a bit differently than it is in europe when i go to europe and you know i I've, I've been really lucky i've gone to the um in, in helsinki there's the center of excellence on hybrid warfare the conversation in europe is super russia focused right and, and in canada we actually have more in common with a lot of our indo-pacific partners where the the issue really is china and so i think in the arctic as china is increasing its um you know sending ships up there is expressing interest in you know arctic development and and, and and sending spy balloons, for example, last year, of course. Um, I think these are the kinds of things that are slowly slowly changing Canadian public perception. It's not so much Russia, I think it is China. As to your question, to get back to your point, as to whether or not the leadership in this country is, is having serious conversations about it, it's hard to say. I mean, in the early years of the Trudeau government, we did hear a lot about the importance of the liberal international order, and the trading system, particularly from uh, now Deputy Prime Minister Minister and Minister of Finance Christia Freeland, we haven't heard a lot about that recently. And I think part of it is when Trump was elected out of office, I think there was a little bit of a collective sigh of relief, um, at least temporarily now it might seem. Um, But the other aspect here too is that you know, the Trudeau government was elected on a platform that, that, you know, we could call sunny ways, right? National security and defense is the opposite of sunny ways. And I think it's very hard for uh, Trudeau to really kind of talk in in these terms and be very, I I don't know, credible is the right word. But you know, you can kind of see this is not where the heart of the liberal government really is. Um, and to be honest, though, if we look around um, the other leaders as well, I'm not sure it's where the Conservatives are either. The Conservatives are running very much on a domestic agenda, housing prices, cost of living, uh, all these kinds of things. So are we getting that conversation? Absolutely not. Because Canadians still don't feel threatened um, even as I think their perception of that national security and the global order is changing.
0: Yeah, I mean, our, our intention here is not to threaten Canadians or even to imply <laughs> it. Yeah, you know, just hev- heavily suggest that there might be something more going on in the world that might make Canadians uncomfortable. A nation Speaking of hockey like-
3: fighters, we're we're good. We're good. We, yeah, we, we, you're good. The got we're The gloves come off. Yeah, it's, it's okay. We're watching.
0: Well, the thing is, we're watching where the puck's going on this one. I know my Wayne Gretzky. Um, I'm impressed. Over to you. That's
3: very good. We often
1: talk about team power, the idea that we have um, a West that, or a liberal democratic West that needs to understand that it's a part of a team, and every single member of the team has, you know, a different role to play or a different comparative advantage, something that they can contribute uh, to the team a little bit better than perhaps anyone else, and. Uh, obviously a team member like Germany isn't necessarily, doesn't ha- necessarily have the same stake in, in, in the Arctic the same way that Canada does or Finland does or Sweden does who are about to join NATO. as uh, something and I know that's something that you've written on before. But if we look at China in particular, um, and that that is a country that both Germany and Canada are particularly um, exposed to, and uh, is is there a way for us to perhaps contribute to the the team in a more comparative advantage kind of way? Uh, by really looking at and, and evaluating our, our China policy um, in, in a new light.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the challenges and the intentions that, that is currently going on in Canada um, is deep reflections about kind of how you deal, how we think about foreign interference in domestically in Canada, how you think about it in research. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that, you know, Canada just released a list of something like 85 institutions, research institutions, um, a, a large chunk of them are Chinese, some of them um, Russian, um, that are basically, you know, for for scholars to say these are not places where the Canadian government says that you should be collaborating or working and stuff like that. And so that's one thing. And, and right now, there have also been a couple cases in Canada. Um, and so we were talking about the Arctic. And in fact, one of the people that was found was a Russian who was working in Norway but had trained in Canada who was claiming to be Brazilian, right? Um, and so I'm looking at Stephanie because she knows the link to where she's sitting because this person went through Carlton. Um, and so... <laughs> um, Just want to so stress no affiliation. Also- yeah, of course. But um, but that made headlines, right? This person went through Carleton and University of Calgary. So it's a bit of like, oh, they managed to go through two, you know, quite highly respected Canadian institutions. How did this happen? You know, um, and so I think that that's one thing that Canada is now trying to navigate in the Chinese case. Um and the other thing that's important is that you know Canada has a, obviously this trade dependence on China, and a dependence um, where China is you know very closely second to the United States. So in some senses, it's got challenges in both files. Um, but anything Canada does with respect to China, it always fears that kind of penalty that might be economic, right? And it's really not willing to push that far. I think the best, one of the really good examples of this was when we had the Chinese detainees, Sp- uh, Spavor and That Canada really didn't manage to do a whole lot until some of the other countries got together and really started to put pressure and exert things. For more than a year, there was a lot of kind of pressure at home, really went nowhere and then all of a sudden kind of we saw Germany we saw you know Biden you know uh, picked up and you know and then this kind of pressure mounted and we saw traction and movement in the file um, and so I think that's one thing that, that I would note is that it's really a challenge for Trudeau to figure out how to deal with that right how to walk that line in one way or another um, and it, it ended up being essential to have German and uh, French and American support in terms of freeing those detainees
3: I wish there was a better recognition that Canada always speaks louder when it speaks with its friends, right? And I wish this was a point that we could uh, stress further and say, see our leaders say that. Um, and, and to this point, I mean, we saw that in the fall of 2023 when Trudeau stood up in Parliament and all of a sudden out of nowhere says, oh, by the way, India assassinated a Can- <laughs> you know, someone on Canadian soil and we're not happy about that. And then um, I was actually in Europe that week when that happened, and and it's not always easy to get meetings with the EU as a Canadian, but uh, I was very popular that week, and um, when I spoke with, with the EU, they, they were kind of stunned that this happened, and uh, I think the thing that we felt in Canada was an immediate lack of international support, right? Um, if you look at the various statements, um, they were very... Uh, gentle shall we say um, you know the Americans said yes we are aware of this case uh, or you know um, the Brit uh, the British came, statement um, which came from the foreign minister I believe didn't even use the word India um, there's a lot of real caution about this in, in terms of what happened and so um, and I think Canadians really felt alone and they felt abandoned by this and so uh, you know we have seen efforts in the past I don't think that that effort has been consistent but you know, what Anissa was talking about initially was um, this idea that, you know, we were really trying to build coalitions around arbitrary detention um, of individuals who are are captured abroad. Right. And this was, you know, a, I thought a really good initiative that, you know, to get Western countries on board, that every time you meet with, you know, a country that is holding citizens, arbitra- or, you know, that are deemed to have been arbitrarily detained, you bring this up in your meeting. Right. And if the you know, all the EU countries do it, if the United States does it, if Australia does it, Japan does it you know, Canada does it, that's a really powerful tool that you can have if we kind of work together around these things. And I think this is something that Canada and perhaps Germany could be pushing for. It doesn't always have to be a form of alliances, but just these kind of principled stances. You aren't the kind of low-hanging fruit. I, I do worry that in this world where we're not working uh, together, that Canada really is this low-hanging fruit that can be an example. You don't want to take on the US, you don't want to take on the EU. Well, you're willing to take on Canada because, you know, we're not... F- Formally in any of those organizations, right? So I think that um, we saw this during the, I think was it was at the 20, 2017, 2018 Saudi spat, we called it when Saudi Arabia suddenly just kicked out all Canadian diplomats and, and severed relations with Saudi Arabia. Um, we saw this with the two Michaels that, um, you know, Anissa mentioned. We saw this with India. And this is going to continue, right? So, why, where's our foreign policy? on trying to promote this idea of better cooperation, not necessarily always through alliances, but through just principles of basic friendship.
0: Absolutely right. And this is something we've we've written on quite a bit in the links you can find in the show notes to that, about Germany needing to become a team player because Germany is not really yet a team player. And this is the idea that we have these friendships with like-minded countries, which we don't use, which we don't actually leverage for all that they're worth. And we, we had a session in Berlin with... Um, group of Canadian experts who were over from the MLI, the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, and also with the Canadian embassy. And one of the common um, things that came out of this discussion was just how low of a priority Germany and Canada are for each other, despite having so much in common. And for all this new quest that we have to influence the swing states of the world, to find new partners and so on, it seems as though there's, there's a lot of un, almost unknown friends much closer to us that we could be using. However, I, I get the feeling that for all you know, sunny ways is one way of leading. There's there's other Canadian ways of leading, and I, we're, we're going to go full hockey again here. Um, Maurice Richard, the Rocket, from back in the back in the day, the Habs captain, legendary hockey player, who of course led led by a quiet example, by doing, by toughness, by by a resolute character that actually gave the signal to his teammates that he was willing to take the hit for them and take them where they needed to go. Germany's not really been doing that. I mean, Anessa, you mentioned earlier in the, in the show, 2%. Well, in, you've said you know, it's, it's an aspiration for smaller countries. That's not really how that's understood in Europe, I have to say. It was for everybody. And Germany didn't even get close. And it's still not guaranteed to meet it for beyond two years. So my suspicion with a lot of this is that if we actually individually started stepping up and actually meeting the things we are supposed to do, plus looking around, understanding who our teammates are, we might have an easier time of it. We might actually be able to, to work out how not to become the low-hanging fruit, how not to become isolated. So that, that's something I think we'd be interested to push. But from both your points of view, what are the obstacles to that? What are the possibilities that you would see? So where's the opportunity and where's the obstacle?
2: Clearly, I think that one of the opportunities that Germany and Canada should be seizing upon is going to be, you know, nature, NATO's kind of of uh, embracing of this agenda on um, how climate change is a collective defense issue, right? And I think that that's one place where both governments, um, and we know that climate change speaks a lot to the Canadian public. And just to give you an idea of the comparison, I'm in a a, a different uh, research project right now where we look at electoral promises. And so the last two Trudeau minority governments together have 913 electoral promises that they made. Um, And so I'm part of a team where we're examining all these electoral promises. And so I'm heading um, the group that's looking at national defense, foreign policy, and international trade, right? And so two things immediately stand out on these 900 and some promises, over a hundred of them are on climate change. And so to say that that has become uh, an agenda issue and something that Trudeau has really, you know, kind of put his hat on would be understating it. Um, you know, and I think the second thing is when you look at national defense, there's amazingly few promises. And I think that this in foreign policy. So grouping them all together, we ended up with about, I think, 70 promises. So not as many as one might think, but. Um, Right. Out of 900 and some. Um, And, you know, in a lot of them, the other thing you have to recall in in Canada, one of the challenges that neither of us have spoke to. But, you know, we have a challenge of the professional culture in our military forces. And this has affected our capacity to recruit. um, It's affected our capacity to uh, to retain. And we also have a a crisis with our veterans, a veterans homelessness crisis. Right. And so these very much serve as deterrence, right, to dissuade people to think about going into the armed forces. And this has huge systematic ripple effects across our capacity to defend, our capacity to contribute to NATO. So this is something also that I think is a challenge to Trudeau really um, getting out there. Because what it's meant is that there is, um, there's toxic leadership there's frequent changes to leadership in our military. And so you don't have that stability, right? That really lets you continue to collaborate and be partner in some of those things. Um, and so we have good individual leaders, but I mean, when you have a systemic structural issue, you know, you've kind of created this weak foundation. Um, and obviously the other thing, and we've alluded to this a little bit is, is you know, uh, defense spending that simply in Canada, it, it's difficult. Um, to, And like I say, to the extent that Trudeau is linking defense to climate change, it's going to help him because we know our voters will exp- will actually pay more taxes if they know that it goes towards climate change and reducing climate change and all of that. Right. And so to the way that you can kind of link up these two, uh, maybe not um, very apparent bedfellows. Um, I think that this is something that is, you know, uh, in both countries, I think, speaks uh, to to the Democratic publics.
0: Very interesting. Steph, before we come to you, Anessa, just just give a, give our listeners an idea out of 900 or out of 100 or out of 70. Roughly, what is the Trudeau government shooting at? Are they uh, where, where's their success rate there?
2: Well, it depends a lot. Um, I can say that for the, um, what is interesting is that the second Trudeau government did broke a fair number of promises. The third Trudeau government has learned and not broken a single promise. They are kind of in progress and working towards, and they also made fewer promises. Um, And so, you know, to me, Um, But one of the things that to me was particularly interesting is that there was a very every time that there was a promise involving Canada leading internationally, Canada did not do well fulfilling that promise. Um, And so I think that that's probably something that, um, you know, is interesting to both audiences. So there were promises about leading on various files um, and. I think that that speaks most. And, you know, again, we can also point to the fact that Canada failed to get a seat in 2020 at the UN Security Council. Um This was a bit of a we don't want to say humiliation, but um, it did not look well, let's say when you looked at the vote totals and all of that. Um, and so the, again, and this was also Canada's second attempt in less than a decade. I
0: hope they don't learn the the sort of Homer Simpson lesson from this, which is never try because that doesn't really seem to to come up to our, our current security needs. Steph, picking up that question what what where is the scope to do more better together?
3: So uh, let's start with the positive, right? Um, and the most positive thing was the Rocket Richard reference for hockey. Let's just start there. And uh, the one thing I like, I am so impressed. Like, like honestly, that's how you're going to get the Canadian listeners. Yes. You did your homework, sir. Um, yeah, I mean, and what's interesting about Rocket Richard, of course, he was well known for his stare, that he would just stare directly at his opponent. Like, yeah, he would absolutely, like, blow them away. Like, there's no question. But a lot of times he would just intimidate them by staring at them, right? So kind of, like, standing up and, and standing your ground was a big part of his uh, whole persona. And I think there is maybe a lesson there. So I'll stop the hockey analogies there because I'm actually more of a, like, a American football girl. I want to give a shout out to the Dutch and in in, uh, here in, in, in Canada. And they, uh their their ambassador here has often said we're not spending enough time learning from each other and we often look at problems as if we're going through them alone and uh, she noted that um, uh, she noted that you know Canada's foreign interference crisis we'll call it that we've been dealing with a lot of foreign interference issues recently in Canada in ways that we've never done before um and 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 she noted that you know you're not the only country going through this but you're kind of acting as if you are so it's like why aren't we actually reaching out to our friends one of the things that you know Uh, that I think is very positive, and you said that, you know, Canada and Germany, we're not really doing very much, but if you look at the number of German officials that have visited Canada recently, it's actually huge, like, right? There's been a lot of German officials that have come through Canada in the last two years. Um, And one of the key themes has been, you know, natural resources and stuff like this, but also protecting democracy. This is something that is really uh, seizing, I think, parliamentarians in both countries, um, civil society in both countries. Like, how do we protect democracy? There's obviously issues that we can collaborate on. And I think that, you know, we need to stop looking at issues alone. Um, And the good news there is that that's not that's a very cheap thing to do, right? Like, that's not an expensive thing to do. It actually just requires us talking to each other. Where I think there are more obstacles and challenges are a couple of things. Firstly, I think Germany is always going to look to its EU's partners first. um, And that's very understandable, right? Um, Even where there are significant commonalities with Canada. But you know you're gonna you're gonna look to your own neighborhood first, and that's understandable. Um, in Canada, we're always gonna look to the U.S. first, I think, um, for better and worse. <laughs> but I think that's gonna be a part of it. Secondly, um, we don't. I think we often take, especially in Canada, and I'd like to hear your take, um, Benjamin, on the German view on this. But I think in Canada we take friendship for granted. We don't think that these are relationships we have to invest in. But we do. It takes money. It takes diplomatic resources. We have to have people on the ground. We shouldn't assume. Oh yeah, Canada and Germany. Yeah, we're good. We're good. You know. But you still have to keep up a friendship. You keep up a friendship. You know, by by meeting with your friends, by hanging out with your friends, by sharing with your friends, and so that actually does take resources that you have to put on the ground. I think, and I would say that. The other issue here that's kind of unfortunate—I don't know how you fix it—is actually media reporting here in Canada. Um, I was—I had a meeting actually this week with um, you know an Indo-Pacific country, and and they had mentioned that you know they're they had a very high-level visit here in Canada, and there was no media coverage of that whatsoever not one major newspaper covered the story. Um, now, it didn't help it was the beginning of January. I think people are still maybe kind of uh, taking some extra Christmas time and, and, you know, Parliament here isn't going yet, so maybe things aren't in full swing. But the fact is that, you know, there was basically no media coverage of a G7 leader coming to Canada. Um, that's shocking. And so, and, you know, with, with the kind of some of the challenges that our media environment currently facing, I think that unless you can bring this to the Canadian public and explain to this why, you know, maintaining these friendship, these ties is so important, particularly in an area of friend-shoring, particularly in an area of where, you know, maybe democratic values are under attack, this is going to be a major stumbling obstacle as well.
0: Steph, thanks so much for that. I do have a couple of things to say on that, but first I'm going to throw over to my friend and co-host, Aaron your fellow Canadian. Aaron, what's what's your take on that? I
1: would actually say that a lot of this issue also has to do with um, willingness and with leadership, particularly in Canada at the moment. I mean, uh, Stephanie, you just mentioned foreign interference, the idea that, um, you know, when the Dutch said, um, you know, you're not the only country to be going through this. There are other countries that are going through it as well. But I also have to say that the Trudeau government deliberately ignored this interference, and that's why we had to find out about this interference from the security services. There was no willingness to confront this interference, let alone go talk to an ally about it. So that's one thing that I see as being an issue right there. Um, If we go to uh, the Trudeau government, their aspiration of leadership on questions of climate change and security. I mean, on one hand, I think that this could get very difficult domestically because I do actually think that the issue around um, uh, taxes and that whether Canadians are willing, in fact, to pay the carbon tax. I mean, right now, the Conservatives are ahead in Canada and one of their biggest slogans is axe the tax so and this is certainly resonating um with people and i come from out west which is of course a conservative stronghold so this particular point is much more salient out there than perhaps it is uh, in the east and i know that maybe um the two of you might have a bit more to say about that uh, but but in from where i'm from this is a very very salient point are we really willing to pay more for for climate change leadership particularly when um, there are needs um, perceived elsewhere. When Olaf Schultz visited uh, Canada um, and visited Justin Trudeau in Canada, the result of that meeting was that Justin Trudeau said that there was no business case for... Uh, gas to be delivered from Canada to Europe Um, and sitting here as a German Canadian from the West I said no one believes this this is not true and what we're hearing from as well um, from EU Commissioner Margaret Vestager saying that Canada in fact has a lot of the resources that Europe and the rest of the West and many of the rest of, uh, of democratic powers actually need to be able to find alternatives to the Chinese, to the Russians, to other authoritarian powers, but I don't see an awareness in Canada for this, not necessarily just for um, petroleum-based resources, but also for critical minerals and all of this other kinds of thing. I think that we are losing this strategic um, discussion in Canada, frankly. Um, and when it and, and I think we see some of the same problems when it comes to the Security Council. The, it was not a surprise to me that we lost that particular vote because the Norwegians are were paying 0.9 percent of their GDP on ODA at the time, on overseas development assistance at the time. The Irish were paying more. The Irish had more. Um, Peacekeepers deployed abroad in absolute terms um, than we did, Um, and even though we're a much larger country, it was no surprise to me that we lost. And it really uh, goes to the question of how much are we willing to spend? What are we willing to put in? Are we willing to provide these resources and contribute to the the team? Do we have a strategy to do this? to do our bit for the rest of the democratic world, which would also benefit our own companies. Are we willing to put more peacekeepers in the field, more overseas development? Are we willing to spend more on defence? Are we willing to even acknowledge that foreign interference is a problem? Um, So far, the answer to all of these questions from my perspective is no, we're not. And so it's hard for me to understand how... Uh, our allies are supposed to engage with us with that in mind. I think it's quite possible that we may have a change in government very soon. So how precisely should uh, we actually um, develop a strategy together? Um, How should our allies even approach us in Canada for how to do that going forward?
2: In a very uh, functional structural sense, one of the things that would really help this relationship along between Germany and Canada is signing a defense cooperation agreement. Our latest agreements with Germany in matters, so we don't have a defense cooperation agreement and we don't have a defense classified information agreement. Those are two big things. Two big, if you have a diplomatic defense policy playbook, it's got like five or six agreements in it. And so two of the big ones we don't have. And the other one is, so we have a defense science informa- information agreement that dates back to the seventies. And there's a technical science information that dates back to the sixties. So we have these kind of two first agreements, but the follow on agreements that are kind of the real things that make the relationship they were never done because they everybody got nato and got lazy and he got in the EU and got lazy. And so the other agreements that Canada and Germany have are basically through NATO and through the EU. And so this is great, but it makes it so that there's not really that direct link between the two. The lens of coming through either the, the EU's agreement or through the NATO institution means that it's very difficult to develop that bilateral relationship in a way that is important and substantial. And so the inside of like a defense cooperation agreement would talk about the various things things in which you should consult on various issues. And so one of the things that I think would be really good for the two governments to think about is really putting these things on paper. Like, I mean, everybody's going to say like, we do this anyways, we do this through these other things, but creating those formal pathways are important, right? Because if you have a blockage at NATO or a blockage in the EU, right, then you have this other informal pathway that lets you say, look, we can talk about these issues and we can talk about them at a fairly high level because defense cooperation agreements are signed by foreign ministers or defense ministers, right? And so this gives you that pathway. Where you can kind of, you know, um, discuss and maybe create that that common look towards maybe managing the bigger institutional issues. And so I think that's one thing that the countries can do that would really help to create that bond and that relationship in a very, you know, functional, structured manner, but also in a pragmatic manner that, that can be useful to both.
0: Thanks very much, indeed, for that very useful, concrete suggestions. And if there's something that's guaranteed almost to go down well with the German government, it's the idea of writing another document that will be um, certainly embraced with open arms. The the coalition agreement itself provides for more than 30 strategies to be written, many of which we're seeing the results of now, which I I would say nonetheless contain something of a true strategic deficit. So actually something that's really concrete on that tech more co-operational, operational level would be welcome. But Steph, isn't the real problem here a lack of strategy at the top level in both countries?
3: This is a clear issue in Canada where, you know, the government has consistently struggled to write strategies um you know it, it's bizarre to me that we are the only G7 country without a stated foreign policy we have not had the Trudeau government came in and for all of its talk of sunny ways and, and doing international relations differently it decided against doing a foreign policy um there does seem to be in the bureaucracy and and this is my own experience uh, a real bias against doing strategy documents because they're like oh well they fall out of date so quickly there's no point but you know there doesn't seem to be recognition that these strategy documents are also conversations to have with our allies and i think this kind of maybe gets back to the point that you know i tried to mention earlier that we're not investing in our allies well you know just telling our allies what we care about what we plan to do these are these are very important things that we just seem to somehow think are not important um the the fact is that you know these strategy documents do talk to Canadians right, uh, their conversations to have, and yeah, they fall out of date quickly, but that's why uh, every other state, up, <laughs> that's why every other state updates theirs fairly frequently, you know, they don't use these as decade-long documents to, to put forward, they are manpower intensive, um, one of the very nerdy things about, um, the Canadian government that, you know, I don't mean to put your, our listeners here to, to sleep, but like, um, The level of coordination across departments is crazy, right? Like, you know, the level of consulting, getting everyone on board, you know, I think in in other countries, you know, the state department just puts out a foreign policy and and kind of gives a heads up to to everyone else and says, by the way, we're doing this by, uh, in Canada, that's not the case. Like there's, there's just endless rounds of consulting. It's an exhausting process. And I think that's why no one really wants to do it. But yeah, I mean, this idea that we're just always in reaction mode to to international events rather than pro proactively thinking about how do we better secure our friendships how do we engage in how do we engage with people we're not friends with um or or like those countries we're having challenges with we were one of the last countries to put out an indo-pacific policy right um th- these are real deficits in our thinking and i i do and, and it's shocking to me because we do have some very smart people who are working at our global affairs department um who are working in in, in the center of government. You know. But collectively, we just seem to fail constantly at doing this. So the leadership in Canada has been really struggling. It's funny because I do see German commentators um, kind of talking about the lack of strategy, the lack of urgency, the lack of, you know, all the time. And I'm like, man, I, if, if you guys feel like you're behind, we are miles back. Um, and it does feel like we are just that much more behind, even where perhaps Germans feel they are.
0: Well, I mean, this is again, then something not to go through alone, is it? We're truly together in uh, in this. And I think that's that's where mutual lessons could be learned, help could be provided. And perhaps a mutual sense of urgency could be could be uh, injected into the process. I mean, it's interesting, you mentioned there's no foreign policy, Germany has all the foreign policies. And that has led to it not quite having a coherent one. Because of the coalition government system, you have different ministries doing quite different things at different times. The coalition agreement, of course, was supposed to help with that, as was the national security strategy, but it should should be emphasised, was consulted to within an inch of its life across all ministries until all of the sort of salient pointy parts of it had been removed which led to a lack of prioritization but nonetheless the process was useful as a first strategy that sounds very familiar <laughs> I was
3: just going to say that sounds maybe that's something we could maybe what we need is like international therapy sessions um, <laughs> yeah. maybe could, that could maybe uh, be we've the all been
2: traumatized block. by our government's attempts
0: Aaron often talks about the mutually uh, mutually reinforcing dysfunction between the US and Germany but we need the mutual self-help group for the, the others whatever strategic documents. Documents there are, we don't have a clear strategy for actually the kind of world we want to help shape together and alone. what What world do Canadians want to see and how does that relate to Canada in the world? Same thing with Germany. How would that link ecological policy to technological policy, to geoeconomic policy and geopolitics and put them in some kind of coherent direction? And that need, Aaron, is really coming to a very sharp point because of what's happening in the US, right?
1: Well, absolutely. And I was actually remembering um, that uh, shortly after Trump was elected the first time, and I suppose we hope it is the only time, but we can't discount the possibility, of course, that there will be a second time. Right away, uh, Germany came out with the so-called Alliance for Multilateralism. um, And it included Canada as one of those like-minded countries that was committed to the liberal multilateral international order, Uh, With which to uh, engage with more intensively, um, a little bit as a way to kind of hedge against uh, a U.S. that um, was uh, going to um, turn more isolationist under Donald Trump, um, where uh, the American commitment to things like NATO and that sort of thing or or leading uh, the West in international institutions was was being questioned, but in my view, beyond a what by all accounts was a warm personal relationship between Justin Trudeau and Angela Merkel, um, the previous German Chancellor, nothing else really seemed to come out of this. And now here we are, uh, eight years later again, potentially having the exact same discussion, um, trying to figure out if there's actually a way to put a strategy together for exactly this, as Ben is is talking about. So what needs to be different? Uh, this time, I mean, I know, Anessa, you just spoke about the possibility of a defense cooperation agreement, and that's a, a wonderful concrete step that's there. But what else also needs to be there, including outside of the realm of, of, of defense, uh, as well, if we talk about economy, technology, um, and diplomacy, those sorts of things that are important to both Germany and Canada?
2: My couple cents would go towards um, thinking about greater collaboration between uh, the defense industry sectors in both countries. I think that there are a multitude of opportunities that would be available between, um, you know, because Most of the focus tends to be in Canada and kind of that U.S. relationship. There haven't really been very many attempts for Germany, Canada and other similar countries to think about even developing uh, any sort of military equipment. So I think there's probably, you know, options there that are kind of outside of what we might think about classically. Um, and this could lead to something that would be a little bit more structured in long term. I mean, uh, I think that, that would be one thing in the armaments industry and in the defense industries. There's gotta be, you know, opportunities to greater collaborate between these two countries, um, given all of the demands that are coming down the line. I just think that they don't think of each other as partners naturally to do that. They both turn to other countries as a reflex. Um Despite the fact that I think that there's a lot of really good complementarity, and we know that these are countries with highly skilled sectors. And and, I mean, our defense sector has more STEM in it than our science and tech sector. In fact, Uh, this is what our like 2022 data statistics reported for that labor sector. Um, And so it's basically one of our most educated and most technologicalized sectors in our whole economy. We're missing out on an opportunity in my mind there.
3: If we're looking down the road, a potential uh, Trump election or even like we should be clear, like even if he's not elected, there's the real potential for disruption in the United States and the immediate aftermath that we saw a couple of years ago. Right. So um, and and it could be worse. So we, we do need to be prepared Um, you know, Christia Freeland in 2017 had this line and the line has really stuck with me, um, which is that the U S is tired of carrying the mantle of global leadership. It no longer wants that. And I think this is potentially true. And we're seeing this to a large extent with Ukraine. Um, we need to think about what does it mean if the United States no longer wants that mantle of global leadership, um, you know, I think in the immediate case, it's going to be what is Plan B for Ukraine, and thinking through that—that's something that Canada has definitely um, been at the forefront of. It's been at the forefront uh, for the Trudeau administration, even if our contributions haven't been as large as as other countries. Um, but you know, in other kinds of uh, of ways of spearheading things like um, the the you know whether or not we can take. Uh, money that's been frozen in accounts and put it towards giving it to Ukraine. That's something that Canada's been working on and other kinds of sanctions as well. Um, That's really important. But we too are looking at a very substantial change in government down the line. We've mentioned this, um, that the Conservatives are leading the poll. These Conservatives are not like prior Conservative governments. They are very less... Focused internationally, they're very domestic. Um, a lot of uh, conservative members of parliament have expressed deep skepticism towards Atlanticism, uh, towards Ukraine and things like this. So um, others are very staunch um, Atlanticists and, and, you know, are, are very uh, traditional in their approach, but there's a, a bit of a schism in the foreign policy of the most recent manifestation of a conservative party is in Canada. So one area where I do think, though, that would carry over from, say, a Trudeau government to, say, a Polyev government, if that happens, would be in the area of energy and energy security. This is something that um, Germany is very interested in and something that uh, I think Polyev would definitely be interested in pursuing. I mean, we've struggled to get energy out of the ground in this country for a whole variety of reasons. That would be an entirely separate podcast. But uh, I think it's something that would definitely be something to build on uh, to maintain transatlantic ties even as governments might be shifting in in the near future. So, Stephanie, I'd
1: I'd like to pick up on that point uh, that you were making on uh, potential Canadian leadership um, on foreign policy On one particular file. um, It's no secret that I'm often quite critical of Canadian foreign policy, but one um, thing that uh, really strikes me is a place where we have seen Canadian leadership in foreign policy, and that is, as you've mentioned, on the seizure rather than the freezing of Russian assets, so actually being able to confiscate um, Russian assets that have been frozen. In Davos, just recently, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Freeland pointed to Canadian legal uh, legislation, a legal framework that is already in place that allows those assets to be confiscated, Something that Ukrainians have been calling for, uh, that the U.S. is talking about, but Europeans seem generally reluctant uh, to do so far. And she said, "Rebuilding Ukraine will be expensive, and fighting a war will be expensive. So it makes sense that the aggressor will pay for the damage." So we do still see um, Canadian leadership, by example, come through sometimes. What can um, Canada's partners? You know, I'll pick on Europe here because it seems to be the most reticent on the question of confiscation of Russian assets. What can we learn from Canada here, and also should Canada be making more of this?
3: This is a really good example of, I think, leadership, and and again, it doesn't cost anything. It uh, is a useful uh, precedent. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of these things that I think Canada could be doing uh, in 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 all kinds of areas. Um, uh, you know. I think back to you know the late 2000s when uh, Canada you know led a initiative at the United Nations that led to the responsibility to protect uh, doctrine, which I'm not sure how useful that was, but it changed the conversation around um, intervention, right, and sovereignty and things like that. So you know these are the kinds of things that that, that we can be doing. Um, but getting back to this issue on on this, the 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 seizure. One of the challenges I think we have in bringing this forward is that Canada' is really good at passing legislation it's really good at sanctioning things but it does not have appropriate enforcement mechanisms right um, And this is one of the areas where we've we've really struggled that you know we can we can we're, you know sometimes I'll joke here that um, I think Canada, Canadian foreign policy is really two things and it is a loud noises and B sanctions button um, that those are kind of our default reactions to most international events. Um, And so we have tons of sanctions. Um, We were one of the first countries to develop um, the Bill Browder framework uh, with regards to uh, sanctioning people for gross human rights violations, things like this. But unless we're investing in the resources necessary to pursue those sanctions, this is not great. So I think one of the things that Canada could do in this space would be to, you know, why aren't we organizing better forums on how we actually enforce this? We know that one of the most significant challenges that Ukraine is facing right now is that Russia has been very successful in evading the sanctions that are there, right? So what are we doing to improve enforcement? Um, what what are the lessons that we can take? Can we bring a round table together so that, you know, not only improve uh, the West's ability to enforce sanction, but to also improve our own? I think this would be Uh, not to use the Chinese expression win-win, but it would be a win-win situation and something that I think we could do. So yeah, more of this. Like, this is just basic stuff that I think we can do in in kind of trying to push things forward in ways that would not only be useful for the West and the EU and Canada, but also Ukraine. In terms of the future transatlantic community, I think the
2: other thing we didn't really discuss is we're having 75 years of NATO. Um, We're celebrating 75 years of NATO. Um, And so this is a reason to kind of celebrate this transatlantic link. And so I think that this is something that both Kennedy and Germany can can speak to, um, can use as a way to kind of, kind of re-cement that relationship um, and think about ways in which we can go forward. This is the perfect moment um, uh, and to to do this, as particularly as Germany is trying to make this turn in its foreign policy, Canada is struggling. It seems like it would be a good moment for them to kind of say, "Look, seventy five years we've been doing this together. Now let's really start trying to do it together." Right? Um, and so I, I would say in closing that uh, you know there there's much many many challenges uh, ahead in defense and security, foreign policy for these countries. But I think that in a spirit of openness and trying to kind of re those relations. There can be um, picking and choosing files where they, can, with the complementarity of German and Canadian strengths, they can move forward. I think we've seen this in a few files that we've talked about. Um, and so I think it's really got to be about kind of picking, choosing those opportunities.
0: It's such a salient point to make that there is an opportunity. There's a symbolic occasion which could be turned into a meaningful, substantive occasion if we have the will to do it. I mean, of course, Germany joined NATO a little later in uh, 1955, so it's 69 years for uh, for Germany. But nonetheless, this. I wonder if they're really going to rise to the occasion, because it strikes me that that Washington summit coming up just before the U.S. election. So it's coming up in July next year. I'm sure many of us will will be there. There's a non-zero chance that things could have gone south in Ukraine by then. I know. <laughs> that would be really the worst possible way to celebrate 75 years of NATO. It seems also as though Biden could go into that election We're having spent a lot of money on Ukraine without a victory to show for it. And with the possibility then of a Trump administration coming in that would find it difficult to formally pull out of NATO, but would be able to undermine it. So that surely speaks to the urgency incumbent upon countries who do actually gain an awful lot from NATO, like Germany, especially we might argue, but also Canada to really step up ahead of that and make sure that 75 is really a happy birthday rather than uh, the end of the peer show. So, Aaron, I think one of my key takeaways from today was, again, this question about team play uh, and about how Germany and Canada in this instance, but also all free societies, all democracies, could do more... Together and could certainly do better together by understanding their friends more. I mean, these are in some ways friends unknown to each other in a significant way. And I think there's so much low-hanging fruit there from both sides that they could pick up if there was actually the political bandwidth to do it. And of course, that's where think tankers, that's where experts come in to provide ready-wrapped policy suggestions ready for use by both governments. And I'm sure this is something we'll continue to be working on here in Berlin as we seek to understand how like-minded countries can better explore that potential because we'll need to if we are to actually overcome current security challenges, but also to lay those foundations for that better kind of liberal ordering that we've talked about, which countries like
1: Uh, Germany and Canada stand only to gain from. Absolutely. And as much as we share Germany and Canada membership in the various fora um, that often get mentioned whenever you discuss our relationship, the G7, NATO, all of those types of things, um, I think we heard in that discussion, particularly uh, Anessa's point about a defence cooperation agreement that um, we still don't have between Germany and Canada. That's a, a great suggestion for a step to take bilaterally. So I think that we also need to keep in mind that there is that bilateral aspect, that um, there's always something to work on. Something that I also remember hearing from a Canadian diplomat uh, here in Berlin was that when she first got here, it wasn't entirely clear um, you know, what was she to do because there wasn't a lot of contention between uh, Germany and Canada. Um, she had been in posts before where there was a lot more contention and there were a lot more... Um, the relationship was more tense. But here, um, I think sometimes that we, we really need to be looking for, for, for more ways to actually Um, make more of this relationship. I think that came out very clearly these last two episodes.
0: It certainly did. And this highlights a wider problem in international affairs, that if it's not a problem, it's not an issue.
1: Right, And actually,
0: we need to start proactively getting on the front foot and looking for opportunities, rather than just firefighting the uh, the threats that are out there and the difficulties. And so really proactively getting out there and seeking opportunities for better cooperation is, again, something that our intellectual community can help with, but it will have to be things that resonate with uh, the diplomatic corps, resonate with the political establishments in both Berlin and Washington. And one piece of unsolicited advice, as ever, for the Chancellery and, and our listeners here, is do bone up on your hockey knowledge. It apparently goes a long way. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and we can say, say that's also true. Uh, well, hockey knowledge will go a long way in Ottawa, I think, particularly, as well as Washington. But precisely, this really comes down to what we've been talking about in terms of having a grand strategy. And allies are such a key part of that, st- of that strategy, as opposed to simply uh, firefighting where relations are more tense so uh, we hope that there has been a lot that you've gained from this particular discussion on that
0: indeed and this brings us back More seriously, to the point about vision that we've been talking about, again, since the beginning of this season of Berlin Side Out, that without that guiding vision for where you want to go, for the kind of country you want to have, but also for the kind of world that you want to help shape, then any road will really take you there. And some of those will take you over some pretty rough terrain. So instead of that, where's the grand strategic thinking that we actually need to foster between us and that can be best done if it's with allies
1: in mind from the ground up? And also indeed from the top down, we do need to see some political leadership uh, here as well. But I think that when it comes to allies like Germany and Canada, this really should be easy if the will is there. And Ben, we are actually uh, close at this point to the end of our season uh, here on Berlin Side Out, the very first uh, season of the show. Thanks so much to our listeners for joining us uh, this entire time. And uh, we now want to bring it to you. Uh, we actually uh, want to give you the opportunity to ask us some questions here on Berlin Side Out that we will answer on our final episode of this season, don't we, then? That's right, Aaron. No all of them, of course, only the good ones, so make sure your question's one of those. Yes, exactly. So we're including a link in our show notes on this particular episode which will guide you to a place where you can ask us questions um, on X, formerly known as Twitter, and we will take uh, your questions and we will be answering them uh, as uh, part of our final episode for this particular season, so if there's something you really want to ask us, uh, or about certain thoughts that we have about anything that we've discussed this season, please do go there and add it in absolutely we're looking forward to your questions to your comments too and we look forward to
0: engaging with them on that last episode of season one do feel free to tag us on twitter Uh, our twitter handles are in the show notes and tag our associate producer julian stöckle
1: as well to make sure that we don't forget (laughs) he keeps us on track So thank you so much to all of our guests for joining us this week for our look at an underrated but important relationship. As always, you can find out more about them and some of their recent work in the show notes. Special thanks also this week to Wise Canada, that is Women in International Security and Wise Canada Chair Erin Koenig. We encourage you to check out the depth of great expertise Wise chapters around the world have to offer. You can find a link in our show notes as well Join us next week as we check in with Washington. Until next time, auf Wiedersehen, tschüss, au revoir, and goodbye.